0: Good evening, church. Good to see you guys, or or at least uh, be on camera tonight to preach to you guys. Um, Been looking forward to this sermon. Uh, We're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tonight, our verses that we'll be looking at will be verses 35 through 41, and we're going to be picking up where Pastor Cody left off last week. Uh, It's been a little bit of a yucky day today, Uh, nice and rainy, really damp, Uh, but even in the, the midst of of having the the damp day, I'm I'm thankful for God's mercy because we've needed the rain and and it's been good for my garden, uh, good for our our, our land. Uh, we we've, we've been needing that. So even even in the midst of what we would consider a, a nasty day, you know, it's it's another example of God's mercy to us. Uh, so we're thankful for that. Um, if you've already turned in your scriptures to First Corinthians chapter 15, again our verses will be 35 through 41 for tonight. So let's go ahead and read those together. Those, those verses there. It says. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Praise God for His Word. Let's go together in in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for the opportunity that You've given us to come together and worship tonight. Um, it may not be together in one room, but Lord, we're together in one spirit and, and in one accord worshiping your name. Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes tonight, help us to see um, what this text has in store for us, because Lord, we know that this is your word um, and, and it's for our good. It tells us something about you and your character, and it tells us um, how we can come to know you better and how we can glorify you in this world better. So God, I pray that you just help us to be attentive to your word tonight, um, and Lord, just help us to, uh, to edify you, and Lord, uh, we pray that you would just build us up with, with the scriptures tonight. We pray this in your precious and holy name, amen. I'm looking forward to discussing this text tonight. Um, it's a fascinating section of scripture that really teases us with a glimpse of what uh, the resurrection looks like, and uh, what a glorified body will look like. In fact, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about the particulars of what a resurrected and glorified body look like, but this is actually the best description that we have in Scripture of what a glorified body looks like. From verse 35 through the end of the chapter, Paul gives us some hints as to what we can expect to see in the future. And as Christians in the day that we currently live, our ears tend to kind of perk up at this a little bit. Uh, We are absolutely fascinated with the afterlife. We want to know everything that there is to know about what heaven will be, uh, what heaven will be like, what will happen to the earth, um, how we will relate to one another, what we will be doing, and what we will look like. Um, and, and this is natural. We are curious creatures. Um, we are curious creatures that want to know everything that we don't already know. Unfortunately, we can place too much of an emphasis on the things that we don't know. We can desire knowledge more than we desire God, and that's what happened to Adam and Eve. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong. Uh, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to wonder about what's in store for us when Christ returns. But what I will say is that it's best to wonder within reason. Um, in our American culture, we're, we're currently uh, seeing an absolute obsession with anything pertaining to the zombie apocalypse. It, it's just the new fad. Uh, it has been for a few years now. Over the past decade, there have been so many hit movies and TV shows like The Walking Dead, uh, I Am Legend, and World War Z that have romanticized the idea of dead bodies that have life again. They romanticize this idea. We've even seen firearm ammunition designated specifically for zombie control, of all things. Uh, There's even a vehicle here in Callahan that's all decked out for the zombie apocalypse. I believe that this fascination with zombies and other related topics stems directly from our curiosity about what the church's bodies will look like after the resurrection. Will we be decaying corpses that pop out of the ground? Will we be invisible spirits that float around? Or will we be angels that are given wings and a halo? Um, I, be, uh, I don't really know what our bodies will look like look like when we are uh, resurrected, but I don't believe that any of these options that I just listed are, are true. I don't I don't believe that's what it will look like. But but let's take a look at what Paul does go uh, give us to go on regarding resurrected bodies. Uh, in tonight's text, we will see that there is a question asked, then there is Paul's response to that question, and then it will be followed up by Paul's examples about the the question. And then there's Paul's main point at the end. So let's first take a look at point number one, the question that's asked. Remember why this book is written. Um, If if you've listened to me preach or teach at all, you know how firmly I believe that context is key in understanding understanding what Scripture is talking about. 1 Corinthians was written as Paul's response to issues that had come up within the Corinthian church. He rebukes and instructs them throughout the letter. In this particular case, Paul is choosing to instruct the church regarding the resurrection. But why is this instruction necessary? Why why did Paul feel the need to instruct the church regarding the resurrection? If we look at verse 35, we see that someone poses a question. It, It says this But someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, without any kind of historical context to go on, we might assume that. Uh, Someone within the church is asking this question out of sincere curiosity, but this is actually not the case at all. The Corinthian church was smack dab in the middle of a Greek culture that was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Uh, Corinth is in Greece, so it's right here in the middle of this Greek culture. Great thinking and revelation were the cultural norm at the time. As a result, Greek philosophy influenced some people within the church and led them astray. A certain group of these people that were led astray took the Christian faith and put a philosophical spin on it. They essentially argued that the spirit was inherently good and that the flesh was inherently evil. They discounted the deity of Christ by making false claims about his humanity. They also claimed that there, was secret, that there were secret levels of knowledge in the Christian faith that only a select few could obtain through their great thinking and their philosophical minds. And, and we know that's not true. Um, But these false teachers were the predecessors of Gnosticism uh, that Paul and the Apostle John would later combat uh, later on in Scripture. They had confused the Corinthian church with their false doctrine regarding the resurrection. And this question being asked is actually a sarcastic and rhetorical question raised by these false teachers. When Paul's opponents ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come, they aren't really asking because they truly want the answer. Um, they're asking this question as a tool to cause confusion within the church. I can't help but think back to the Sadducees in Luke chapter 20 where they try to trap Jesus uh, concerning the resurrection. So go go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 33. Um, we may be worshiping from home, but that doesn't uh, give us the, the opportunity to not turn in our Bibles. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's go to Luke chapter 20. Verses twenty seven through thirty three. Luke says this Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now, what's funny about this whole thing is what verse 27 tells us. Verse 27 tells us that the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the differences between them and the Pharisees. So if they didn't really care at all what Jesus had to say about this insane scenario, which it absolutely is insane because the whole seven husbands and, and the one wife, it's just, it's an, it's just incredibly ridiculous. Um, they just wanted to throw out a veiled question to trip up Jesus and to make him look bad. By the way, they, they didn't succeed. Jesus put them down really hard. They failed at, at their attempt. But that's exactly what is going on here in First Corinthians chapter 15 when Paul's challengers ask this question about the resurrection. They truly don't care what the answer is. They don't care. This is simply a veiled attempt to cause confusion and discord within the Christian church. It's just a means of mockery for them. So now that we've seen the question that is asked to Paul, we're going to look at Paul's response to the question. That's point number two, Paul's response to the question. Paul's response to this mocking question is quite shocking. What does he say in verse 36? He says two words, You fool. You know, only Paul has the audacity to respond like this. This this truly is a response from the Apostle Paul. If I responded to someone in this manner, I would be rebuked. Um, At the very least, I would come across as a pious snob. But of course, Paul comes down on these guys with two words you fool. And it's funny how we just accept this. We, we just say, oh, that's Paul. Um, and and we, re- we accept it as normal from him. But that stems from the fact that he's already built up the case earlier in the chapter of his apostleship. So we know that we can trust what he's saying. That, that's why we accept this, because we know that, that his apostleship is valid, and we know that what he's saying is true. But we do need to address something before we go any further we need to address the meaning of this word fool. Because without the proper understanding, there can be some confusion here. If you recall, Jesus had something to say about calling someone a fool in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 says this. and This is Jesus speaking. He says, And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So what gives here? If Jesus says that calling someone a fool is is enough to condemn them uh, to hell, then why would Paul say these exact words to his opponents? Now, I know that looking at the Greek um, doesn't always sound like a ton of fun, but it really helps us to clear up muddy water like this sometimes. Um, So if you look at the the Greek word for fool in Matthew 5.22, it's the word moros. Uh, This word refers to someone who is calling someone a name. It it would be the same concept as calling someone stupid or an idiot. It's actually where we get the word, the English word moron. Moros, moron, moros, moron. That's where we get that from. And this makes total sense given the context uh, that Jesus is referring to. He's talking about hatred for someone being equal to murder. So in the context, he's saying that calling someone an idiot out of anger is just as sinful as murder. Now, if we look at the Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 36, it's a different word. It's the Greek word "aphron." This word refers to someone who is senseless and unbelieving. Immediately, I think back to, uh, to the fool that David refers to in Psalm 14, verse 1. Where he says this, "The fool has said in his heart, "There is no God." That's the fool he's referring to. You see, Paul isn't name-calling here. He's not trying to snap back with a witty remark. Paul is calling these guys out for what they really are, for the benefit of the Corinthian church. Paul knows that these false teachers don't really believe in the risen Jesus Christ. He knows that they seek to sow discord, discord and doubt in the church. So he's saying, you unbelieving fool, I know that your question is in vain because you don't really care to hear the answer. I know that you don't believe in the work of Jesus Christ, and I know that your question is an attempt to mock and confuse people within the church. Now, Paul could have just stopped right there. He could have, but he didn't. He continues his response for our benefit and for the benefit of the Corinthian church. And that leads us to our next point, point number three, Paul's examples. Paul doesn't simply shut down his challengers for their mockery. He continues by giving two really profound examples for us to understand what glorified bodies will be like. He does this because he knows that the Corinthian church is confused. So he gives a few hints. So for his first example, he talks about a seed. The first example that Paul gives us is that of a seed. Verses 36 and 37 say this: That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now, I know that many members of our congregation are successful farmers. And I've always been a tad jealous of you guys uh, that are able to grow these huge gardens full of beautiful vegetables every year. Travis, I'm looking at you. Uh, you know, I'm jealous of you guys. So this year, I got a wild hair to try it for myself. Um, on a whim, I decided to try my first garden. I decided to plant some corn, squash, beans, and peas. And man, I busted my butt this year to prepare the soil and get it ready for planting. Uh, put a lot of hard work into it. And I finally got it all ready and planted over 500 seeds. Man, I was ready for the harvest to come. I was ready to eat that sweet corn. But then four days after planting, we got two weeks straight of rain, and it completely washed out my my garden. It just destroyed it. All of my rows were washed out, and and out of all the hundreds of seeds that I planted, only two little bean plants sprouted up. Just two. So I set to work preparing the plot again. I was determined to have vegetables grow this summer. Absolutely determined. But this time, I took the time to pay attention to the details. I thought about how delicate these seeds were, and how they really needed to be given every advantage possible in order to grow. So I dug my trenches a little deeper for the rain, made my mounds a little bit higher, and I planted them a little bit more carefully. Now I've got quite a few plants growing fast and healthy in my backyard. It's amazing to to me how this process actually works though. The plants produce seeds in their fruit. Well, once that fruit dies, the seed within the fruit actually dies with it. The seed dies. But once the dead seed hits the dirt and it has the right environment, new life sprouts from within that seed. And these seeds that were once so small and look nothing like a plant have become tall, leafy organisms. My little yellow kernels of corn now grow tall stalks with long, slender leaves. The tiny hard seeds of of the ochre that I planted, they're, uh, they're now these tender little shoots with small leaves. The flat white seeds in my squash have suddenly become these large plants with broad green leaves on them. And the oblong seeds from my beans have now become a spindly little plant with the most beautiful white and purple flowers on them. Avery loves those little purple flowers. And, and, and this is the image that Paul wants us to have in mind when we think about our resurrected bodies. He's saying that just like a seed, our current bodies are like a kernel of corn, a fragile seed that needs nurturing. Once this fragile body dies and it's buried, much like a seed, a new body will come from it that is more glorious than what it was before. Our earthly bodies are just a precursor to what is to come in the future. And I I find this absolutely fascinating. God uses the imagery of his creation to take such a a complex subject and make it to where we can begin to wrap our heads around it to a certain extent. His grace is amazing like this, to to allow us to be able to try to understand something that our finite minds cannot possibly fully comprehend. But Paul continues on with another example. Example two is the bodies of different glory. Let's look at verses 39 through 41. It says this, "...all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish." There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. I love the imagery that Paul uses in this section of Scripture. Between the example of the seeds and the example of the bodies with different glories, we really see how poetic Paul can be. And this imagery helps us to better grasp the concept that our finite minds can't, can't fully comprehend. He begins his second example by drawing our attention to the different types of physical bodies that exist on earth. He points out that there is a certain type of body for humans. There's a certain type of body for beasts. There's a certain type of bodies for birds and there's a certain type of bodies for fish. <coughs> so how are these bodies different? Well, Obviously, a human body is going to be best equipped with opposable thumbs to grab things, um, a large brain to think with, and vocal cords to speak with. That's how we're different from the rest of creatures. The land animals will have their own bodies suited to meet their needs for survival. Obviously, a deer will have powerful legs and an acute sense of smell, sight, and hearing to escape predators, but a bobcat's going to have padded feet and camouflage so that it can sneak up on its prey. Birds will have wings and hollow bones to help it fly. And fish will have streamlined bodies and gills best suited for navigating the water. We know these things to be true of each type of body, but we know that they function because of how they were made by God. In a similar fashion, Paul begins to describe the different aspects of the cosmos and how they differ from one another. He says that there are different types of glories described to each type of cosmic body. The earth has its own glory for its functions. The heavens have their own glory for how they function. And likewise, the sun, the moon, and the stars all have their own glory ascribed to to them because of how they were made. Now, I know that this is quite a mouthful, um, but Paul is giving us these examples for a reason. So, what is that reason? What's the point? Well, that leads us to our fourth and final point, which is Paul's main point. I believe that if we look at verse 38, we can see what Paul's main point is here. Let's read verse 38 together. It says this But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds, a body of its own. The point is simple God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the plants, he's sovereign over functioning bodies, he's sovereign over the cosmos. So rest assured, God is sovereign over what kind of bodies we will have in the resurrection. You see, we get hung up on the things that, we don't, that don't really matter too much. I'll bet that when I started the sermon, you heard what the topic was and you were immediately intrigued. I'm sure you were thinking, ooh, this sounds interesting. I wonder what he thinks we're going to look like after the resurrection. I wonder what our bodies are going to look like. And honestly, I can't really fault you for that. Um, because I did the exact same thing. When I read this text in preparation for the first time, I was thinking, oh man, hopefully I'm going to learn something new. I'm, I'm going to have a better understanding of what our bodies are going to look like in the resurrection. And I can honestly tell you that that didn't really happen. The scriptures are not clear about what we're going to look like, how we will function, or how we will relate to one another. And the reason is because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. to the the overall arc of Scripture. Paul is, listen, this is really important here. Paul is gently trying to redirect our attention to God rather than ourselves. Rather than wondering about our appearance in the afterlife, we should be marveling at God's sovereignty in our resurrected bodies. Think back to the example of the seed. I don't know how God comes up with this stuff. Who else besides God would think to create life from this tiny little thing that has to die before it grows? No one can come up with that besides God. That's a a God thing. And he makes it work so perfectly. Our entire world is held together by his hands. And every seed that gives new life is directed to by God. He sovereignly guides that seed to do what it is meant to do. And to see how perfectly the seeds function should, should drive us to praise God because of his majesty and power. But how about the different types of flesh and the different, type, uh, the different glories in the cosmos? We all know that creatures are built with bodies that are suited for their needs. Who comes up with that? God did. God knew that humans wouldn't function well with a cold, uh, cold-blooded system. So he built our bodies in the way that he knew we needed them to function. In the same manner, he knew that the moon wouldn't function properly if it had the same properties as the sun. He knew that if if the sun were any hotter, we would literally be cooked alive. And he knew that if it were any cooler, then we would certainly freeze to death. So So each of the cosmic bodies have their own functions and their own properties that are best suited for their needs. Now, God came up with all these bodies, and he continuously upholds them. He is sovereign over all of these bodies. And I want you to know something very important with me, something that's really cool. Look at all the examples that Paul has given to to us to display God's sovereignty. He talked about plants, animals, humans, the earth, the heavens, the stars, the moon, and the sun. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Does it make you think think back to something else in Scripture? Paul is taking us back to Genesis chapter 1, where we see the creation account. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul is effectively telling us that God is sovereign over all of his creation, and, and he always has been so, uh, sovereign over it since the beginning of time. So if he has been sovereign over all of his creation since the beginning of the time— we can trust that he is most certainly sovereign over the look and function of our risen bodies. And I think that's pretty cool. Now, I may have just said all that, and you might still be thinking, yeah, that's great, but I still want to know more. If that's the case, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. Will we be able to recognize one another? Will we see the loved ones that have gone before us? I don't know. I'm not really sure because there's not enough evidence to me in Scripture to say one way or the other. Will we have super fit bodies when we're in heaven? Pastor Cody seems to think that he's going to have these washboard abs. I don't know if that's the case or not, but maybe. But again, I I don't know. What I do know is this. Our bodies will be just what they need to be in the resurrection. Think, think Think back to our examples here. Think about how perfectly God designed seeds to function in the way that they needed to. How much more so will he perfectly design our risen bodies to function for their intended purpose? How much more so? Remember what we will be doing in heaven. Let's remember this. We're not being raised so that we can fish all day in the perfect lake. We're we're not being raised so that we can sit at a buffet table and eat all day without ever getting fat. We're not being raised for the purpose of spending time with our hobbies or or to spend an eternity with our loved ones even. That's, That's not our purpose. We will be raised to give glory to the one true God who purchased us out of death and brought us into life. That's our purpose when we are risen. And so we know that our body will be perfectly suited to do just that. We will have risen bodies that are designed to perfectly bring glory to the Father. That means no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more thirst and hunger, no more financial burden, no more grief for lost loved ones, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more fear of anything. That's what this means. Our risen bodies will be perfectly created so that we will be able to glorify our God without any of the distractions that our current bodies and souls face. And think about this marvelous reality. This is what's the coolest thing to me. Our bodies will allow us to see the glory of our Father and to be in His presence for an eternity. Right now, we can't bear the presence of God's glory. We would die if we saw it. That's why Moses was only allowed to see the back of God as he passed by. But out of his abundant mercy, God is going to allow us to see him whenever we want to. I don't know about you, but that's all I need to know about my risen body. I get to see Jesus face to face. That's good enough for me. Now, As we conclude tonight, I sincerely hope that you have a better understanding of this text than you did before. Paul has given us a well-laid roadmap to focusing on the main point of the resurrection, which is the sovereignty of God and His glory. He effectively does this by addressing the false teacher's question about what type of body we will have in the resurrection. He then answers these mockers by pointing out their foolishness by not revering God. Paul uses examples from everyday life to show how God creates all bodies to function properly. And then he finishes by directing our attention to the sovereignty of God in creation. Paul wants to see that we shouldn't worry about what our bodies will be like in the afterlife. We will be just as we need to be in order to worship God perfectly. Now, if if you have any questions about this, I openly invite you to call me anytime. And I'm more than willing to talk to you about it. I may not have all the answers, but I am more than happy to search the scriptures with you. My, my number's on the back of the, uh, the bulletin with the rest of the deacons, so call me anytime. Um, and I know Pastor Cody and Pastor Justin are more than willing to talk to you as well. They're more than willing to, to take your phone calls as well. And if you're listening to the sermon and you have doubts about whether or not you will be raised by Christ in the last day, I invite you to call us as well. We would love to share with you what Jesus has done on your behalf in order to purchase you from your own sin. See, the only way that you will have a glorified risen body in the last day is through the body of Jesus Christ. It is, the only, it is only through his sacrificial love that any of this is made possible for you. Without the blood that Jesus shed for you and me, we would still be dead in our sins with no hope to see any of this come to pass. But thank God that his mercy is greater than our sin. Church, I love you. I'm glad that uh, we're back on a little bit of a track to normalcy here, and I can't wait to preach to you guys live soon. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for tuning in tonight, um, and let's pray as we close. Father, I thank you for this day once again. Thank you for your your word. Um, Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for letting us be able to read your word and see your sovereignty in creation. God, I know it's easy for us to get caught up on, on the little things, the details that don't really matter because we want to know more. We want to know the things that we don't already know. But God, I pray that you just help us to be satisfied w- with what you've told us. Lord, the, this section of Scripture isn't designed for us to get more understanding as to what we're going to look like in the end. That's not the point of this. The point is that we would trust you and that we would see your sovereignty and in, in our resurrection and Lord I pray that you would help us to rest in that Lord it's um it's amazing to see how how you are sovereign over all things that you've created and you uphold all things and you do all things perfectly God I'm thankful for that I'm, I'm thankful for the idea that one day soon I'm going to get to see you face to face and so will the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ Lord, I can't do that now with this this body that I'm carrying around now, but Lord, one day I will get to look into your face and behold your full glory. And it'll be because you've given me a a resurrected body that's made for it. God, I'm thankful for that reality. Lord, I pray you just bless this church, continue to help us as we grow in the spirit. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.